Well, dear congregation, dear friends, I would ask you to please turn your very prayerful attention there to 2 Kings chapter 10. Those words that I read to you in your hearing earlier this morning, as you know, we are making our way through the book of 2 Kings. We arrive now in this 10th chapter this morning. Last week, in chapter 9, we began to see this man Jehu and all that really he is about. We're learning more about him here. We have said that he is a nominal believer. We speak today, we mention that word uh, nominal Christian or notional believer, somebody who has a mere notion. He is a Christian only in name, but not a real Christian. He is not changed. He's not born again. He has the spirit of the world, and we see that very much in this chapter. Although Jehu is doing the will of God, he is doing it out of a wrong spirit and for all the wrong reasons. But this chapter gives us great comfort and confidence in God, doesn't it? Because despite men's sin, we see how God's will is performed. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 9, who shall resist his will? Even man, we're told, will do the will of God in the end. When we speak of God's will, we speak of it in two senses, not as if God has two wills. There is the decretive will of God, and there is also that which God has said which we should do, that which is ex expressed and what is the will of God? Paul says, even your sanctification, this is the will of God, that you walk in a holy life. But here, in this sense, he is doing the decreed will of God. Now, everything that happens in this world happens by God's determination. Ephesians 1 verse 11 tells us that he works, that is, God works all things after the counsel of his own will. That's amazing. So that even when wicked men put our Lord Jesus Christ to death upon the cross, the apostles, when they went to pray there in Acts chapter 4, says, O Lord, it was of thy will that he should be put to death by the hands of wicked men. It was by thy predetermined knowledge and counsel that the Son of God should be put to death. So here this man Jehu, a notional believer. He even, as we saw last week, he heard the prophecy of Elisha. He uh, is doing the will of God. Elisha came and anointed him king. Or he sent, should we say, a young servant to anoint him as king. He said that he would be king. And he has been made king. And he has slayed many men, but he has done it in a wrong way. And with a wrong spirit, as we'll continue to see. He was a brutal man, to say the very least, unlike David. Remember when David, as we said last week, was told that he would be king? David waited on the Lord. He had a right spirit. This man, when he went against Jehoram, remember how he came out against Jehoram who was wounded and he was healing, but he went out against him. Uh, at his weakest moment, unlike David, who when he could have taken Saul, he didn't take him. But it was, had to be, of course, the Lord's time. Now, of course, everything is in the Lord's time, but God's children always behave in a right manner. 
although they will be called to do many difficult things, they will always do it with the right spirit, my friends, because we walk in the fear of God. Just because we know certain things are right, we don't go about it in a wrong spirit. We must have a right attitude. We must have a right frame of mind. We walk before God. He sees our hearts. You know, even when we give our offerings, we don't do it to be seen of men. When we do anything, when we pray, the Lord Jesus says, you go in your closet. You don't advertise how much you pray. Oh, what time you even get up and pray? You don't, you don't speak about those things. When you fast, you don't tell anybody. That's between you and God. We are to have the right attitude. You know, you can sin even doing the right things. We're learning these things, and we're reminded of these things in this chapter. What we see here in chapter 10 is his nominalism is being shown now in his methods. We saw that his motives in the last chapter were all wrong, but now we see his methods prove to be so ungodly. And we'll see dishonesty in this man. We'll see treachery, although, again, he's doing the right things, but he is doing things with the wrong motive and with wrong methods. The first thing I want you to see this morning as we come to this chapter and as we begin to open it up, firstly, twisting facts to show divine approval. Twisting facts to show divine approval. He didn't need to do this, but he does it. And we notice in verse 1 and following how after King Joram, now remember in chapter 9, he slew King Joram, king of Israel, late son of King Ahab. He's dead now. And what we see in verses 2 and 3, if you notice with me, what Jehu does is he throws down a challenge to the remaining house of Ahab. He's got 70 sons. Now, they could be grandsons, we don't know. But these are the relatives of Ahab. And he throws down a challenge, as it were, to the servants of those sons. And it's terribly wicked. It's vile what he does. It's most vicious. And he is putting upon men that which is wrong. Notice verse I'll read from verse 1. And Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. And Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria unto the rulers of Jezreel. Now notice, to the elders and to them that brought up Ahab's children. So these were the men that looked after Ahab's children. And this is what the letter says. Now as soon as this letter cometh to you, verse 2, seeing your master's sons are with you, and there are with you chariots and horses. So this is a noble family. All the families, the 70 sons. And a fenced city also. You've got all the requirements for a king. You've got these princes, as it were. And armor. Notice what he says. Look even out to the best and meetest of your master's sons. And set him on his father's throne. And fight for your master's house. So he, he's saying to them, in effect, choose out a king. Choose out those, or the, the greatest in all the house here, and make him a king. You choose for yourself a king, and come out and fight. That's what he says. And fight 
for your master's house. So this is really a challenge. He writes to all of the rulers of these uh, men who are, are looking after these sons of Ahab. He says, rise up, choose a king and come out and fight. So you can imagine here these 70 sons. Now there's no resistance against this challenge if you look at verse 4. Why? It's because they're so afraid because of what this man Jehu has already done. Verse 4, but they were exceedingly afraid and said, behold, two kings stood before him. Now what are they saying? Well, these are the two kings that he's just slain, Ahaziah and Joram. How then shall we stand? Well, they were so afraid of him. They were terrified here of Jehu. So you've got the picture. He's already slain two kings. He's going to stop at nothing. Well, the narrative continues on. Look at verse 5. And he that was over the house, and he that was over the city, and the elders also, and the bringers up of the children, sent to Jehu, saying, We are thy servants. Oh, are they, they laying down their arms, saying, We're not going to take up this challenge, and we will do all that thou biddest us, bid us, and we will not make any king. We won't take up this challenge. Do thou that which is good in thine eyes. You, you just do whatever you think is right. So that there's no resistance at this. Now Jehu is not having this. Because he's got wicked plans. Notice verse 6. He writes a second time. Then he wrote a letter the second time to them saying, If ye be mine, in other words, if you're really mine, and if you're really my servants, and if you will hearken unto my voice, take ye the heads of the men of your master's sons. My, he's asking them to do something horrific. Cut off all the heads of these 70 sons and bring them in baskets. Now the king's sons, being 70 persons, were with the great men of the city which brought them up. Now notice this is actually carried out. And it came to pass when the letter came to them that they took the king's sons and slew 70 persons and put their heads in baskets and sent them to Jezreel. And there came a messenger and told him, saying, they have brought the heads of the king's sons. And he said, lay them in two heaps at the entering in of the gate until the morning. Why? Well, perhaps many suggest to bring great fear. If there's a challenge against me, I want the people to fear. Anybody resists me, this is what they're going to get. It's butchery, isn't it? Imagine these 70 heads in baskets. We can't imagine the sight. It must have been a horrific sight. Well, here's the twist. Here's the dishonest twist. I want you to notice it in verse 9. We said what he does is he twists the facts Right to gain a sort of divine approval, to show that God is on his side. But then Jehu, look, notice, he tries to give the apparent favor of God in this. Notice, and it came to pass in the morning that he went out. That is, by the way, to Samaria, the people of Israel, and he says certain things, and said to all the people, ye be righteous. He's saying, you're righteous. You're, you're upright people. 
And he says, look, behold, I conspired against my master. Who was that? Jehoram. Remember, he slew Jehoram. He acknowledges this and slew him. Now notice what he says. This is unbelievable. But who slew all these? <laughs> who slew them? Well, he's saying to them, ye be righteous, you, you be godly, but who killed these people? Well, he doesn't tell them that he actually terrified the people of Ahab's house to do this. Who did this? Well, really, he's behind it. You see, in a sense here, he's adjusting the facts to give the impression that this is divine approval. Now, of course, God did sanction this, that Ahab's house should be destroyed. But you see, he's twisting the facts. Who did this? Well, he was behind it. Now, in the next breath, if you notice verse 10, he talks like a believer as one who sort of even reverences God. Notice, this is, uh, as it were, jargon, Christian jargon. Know now that there shall fall unto the earth nothing of the word of the Lord. You see, this is buttressing what I've just said a minute ago. He was seeking divine approval before, but now notice, this adds to this. Know now that there shall fall unto the earth nothing of the word of the Lord. He's saying this is all of God. But he was the one pushing these servants in Ahab's, as it were, house, those servants that looked after those 70 sons. He didn't need to do this. If God was behind this, he didn't need to manipulate people. That was terrible, wasn't it? Well, he says, know this, that nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spake concerning the house of Ahab, for the Lord hath done that which he spake by his servant Elijah. Yes, that's true. The decretive will has come to pass, but in a wrong way, my friends. I hope we see this. And the interesting thing is here, he uses the word when it's convenient. The word of God when it's convenient or expedient for him. It was expedient now, but before he was twisting things. He was pressuring people. He, he, you know, if he'd at least appealed to the men and said, it's God's will that these men should die. But rather he threatened them. And that's wrong. He didn't need to threaten them. People do this all the time today. Look how he uses the word of God. You must know that the word of God will be fulfilled, they say. And people do this. Normal Christian, he uses scripture selectively. He says, don't judge. You've heard people say that. And they say things like, well, take the plank out of your own eye. That's the world, isn't it? But the Lord Jesus does say, don't cast your pearl before swine. You are to judge. You are to make a, a judgment. But people are very selective when it comes to the word of God. You see, this man, Jehu, he poses a man of God full of zeal, apparent holy zeal, but inside 
He's wicked. And he's got wrong motives. I want you to notice as we follow on in the narrative here, verse 11. So Jehu slew all that remained in the house of Ahab in Jezreel. He didn't stop. And all his great men and his kinfolks and his priests. Well, he didn't have to do that. Well, unless the priests were priests of Baal, but we read later on there are still priests of Baal in the latter part of this chapter. But we don't know. Are these priests priests of the Lord? We don't know. Because remember, there was syncretism here, even at the same time. And we read, until he left him none remaining. Now, if you notice in verse 12 to verse 14, what it is, does, and, and, and there's no stopping here with Jehu. He was told to slay the house of Ahab. But he, he's gone to such extremity, now he's even going to Ahaziah. Now, I know that Ahaziah is related, but only by Athaliah. Remember, Athaliah was the daughter of King Ahab. And he needn't have slain the house of Ahaziah. Now, notice verse 12. And he arose and departed and came to Samaria. And as he was at the shearing house in the way, Jehu met with the brethren of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and said, Who are ye? They answered, We are the brethren of Ahaziah. We go down to salute the children of the king and the children of the queen. And he said, Take them alive. And they took them alive and slew them at the pit of the shearing house, even two and forty men, forty-two men. Neither left he any of them. Now, of course, obviously all of this is in the providence of God. We wouldn't deny that. But Jehu's spirit is completely evil. He is a man filled with pride, and as we'll see later on, he's doing everything for the wrong reason. Even this slaying of the Baal worshippers. Secondly, notice this morning the using of godly people to boast and parade himself as a religious man to strengthen his image. Verse 15 to 17. Notice verse 15. He meets here with a man who is well known. His name here, Jehonadab. And by the way, it seems that Jehonadab was fooled by this apparent zeal the Jew who has. Notice verse 15. And when he was departed thence, he lighted on Jehonadab. So he came across Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. He belonged is probably, if you turn to First Corinthians, uh, sorry, First Chronicles, chapter two, verse fifty-five. It's probable, certainly, this house of Rechab were scribes, and here's a godly man, a scribe. They would write and record the scripture, not like the scribes in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ with the Pharisees and the scribes. They were far gone by then. But in 
First Chronicles 2, 55, we read, And the families of the scribes which dwelt at Jabez, the Terathites, the Shemathites, the Sukathites, these are the Kenites. Of course, we know Caleb was from Kenites, don't we? It came from Hemath, the father of the house of Rechab. We have it there. Also, if you read in Jeremiah, chapter 35, and uh, we have, you have to really read the whole chapter to appreciate the honor of this house of Rechab, a very honorable house. Um, I'll read from verse 16, just briefly down to the verse 19. Because the sons of Je Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have performed the commandment of their father, Jeremiah 35, 16, which he commanded them, but his people hath not hearkened unto me. Therefore thus saith the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring Judah, and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, all the evil that I have pronounced against them, because I have spoken unto them, but they have not heard. And I have called unto them, but they have not answered. And Jeremiah said unto the house of the Rechabites, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, because ye have obeyed the commandment of Jonadab, your father, and kept all his precepts, and done according to all that he hath commanded you. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not want a man to stand before me forever. So, much later on in history, this it seems that this family of Jonadab, son of Rechab, was a godly line, and they seem to maintain in this. But it, it seems that this man Jonadab here has been carried away with Jehu's zeal, apparent zeal and apparent godliness. And so when he sees him, when Jehu sees him, he's all excited, it seems. Notice verse 15, and when he was departed thence, he lighted on Jonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. So he's on his way to meet Jehu. And he saluted him and said to him, Is thine heart right, as my heart is with thy heart? Jonadab answered, It is. Now think of it. The state of the nation at this time, they're worshipping Baal. And of course, Ahab, we all know it was him and his wife Jezebel that initiated all of this Baal worship in Israel. And you can imagine the, the godly are perhaps quite impressed that there's a change now, that there's an end to this wicked um, religion, that it's coming to an end. Jezebel, of all people, she died in the last chapter. Remember, she was thrown down and destroyed. She killed the prophets. And now you can see, maybe this man is, is, is impressed. He looks at Jehu, he's impressed. Oh yes, my heart is with you. Well, if it is, he says, give me thine hand. And what does he do? He takes him in his chariot and he parades him, as it were. And they're on the way to Samaria, riding in this great chariot. Look who I've got with me. This godly man, it looks impressive, doesn't it? And you know, often false teachers are like this. They want to parade with men of renown. We say this, 
The godly don't need to think that way. They serve the Lord. We don't need to be seen with certain men. Well, he takes him in his chariot and he parades this godly man who's fooled by him. Well, it, it's a show, really, of religious zeal on the part of Jehu. And you know, the godly do not need to advertise themselves, do they? They don't need to advertise their zealousness. If a man tells you that he's zealous, more than likely he's not. It, it's all outward show. Well, we look on. Look what happens here in verse 17. And when he, Jehu, came to Samaria, he slew all that remained unto Ahab. He says, let me show you my zeal. He says to him earlier, until he had destroyed him, according to the saying of the Lord, which he spoke to Elisha. Look at what he says in verse 16 to this man, Jonadab. And he said, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. He's boasting. So they made him ride in his chariot. Now the third thing we see this morning, if you notice here, after he slays everybody there in Samaria. Thirdly, this morning, verse 18 to 28, we see this man. He really, as it were, he thinks the end justifies all means. But it doesn't. Although God has told him to do something, the means doesn't justify the way in which he goes about it is completely wrong. He makes up a sordid lie, terrible lie, to justify his actions. Now, you have to remember that as we come to this section now, verse 18 to 28, I think I mentioned it earlier, that everyone here should know that Ahab and Jezebel were the initiators of Baal worship in Israel. That's important that we keep that just at the back of our minds right now. That's, that's so important because you'll see his motives unfold. And all Israel knew this. What is he going to do now? He's going to slay them because he does not want opposition. He really doesn't even have a problem so much with Baal worship. He knew all of Ahab's family were Baal worshippers. That's behind all of this. If he, if he really did it for the Lord, he'll deal with the golden calves. But he doesn't. He still leaves the golden calves. He doesn't love the Lord. And there are many who pretend to love the Lord And they'll do certain things. But just things that they don't do that prove they don't love the Lord. What Jehu wants to do is he wants to destroy all signs of Ahab. That's his real problem. His real problem is not Baal worship. He doesn't have a problem with that. Oh, as he had dealt with it a long time ago. And do you think it had been on fire for the Lord before? 
he feigns support for Baal worship. And this is a lie. This is what he does. Look at verse 18. And Jehu gathered all the people together and said unto them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu shall serve him much. He says, in effect, you know what? You think you've seen Ahab on fire for Baal? Wait until you see me. I'm going to give something so wonderful to Baal. Now therefore, call unto me all the prophets of Baal, all his servants and all his priests. Let none be wanting, for I have a great sacrifice to do to Baal. Whosoever shall be wanting, he shall not live. If the man doesn't come, who really loves Baal, he's not going to live. But Jehu did it in subtlety, we're told, to the intent that he might destroy the worshippers of Baal. And of course, the worshippers of Baal are friends of Ahab. They're in league with him. And they proclaimed it. And Jehu sent through all Israel, and all the worshippers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left that came not. And they came into the house of Baal, and the house of Baal, notice, was full from one end to another. You couldn't get any more in. And notice what he does. And he said unto him that was over the vestry, Bring forth vestments for all the worshippers of Baal. Put on your regalia. And they brought forth them vestments. Now here we have him doing something right. But again, it's all for the wrong reasons. Not for the honor of God, but for his own political motives. He doesn't want any rivalries. You know this in the Old Testament, when there was a new king from a, a new dynasty, he would destroy all the old ones. And that's really what he's doing. Because all those who worship Baal were in league with Ahab. He's doing this for his own glory and advancement, not for the glory and honor of God. You know, Proverbs 21.4 says, And a high look and a proud heart, and even the plowing of the wicked is sin. He's doing something good. How is it that the plowing of the wicked is sin? Do you know? The man who's plowing the field, he's not doing it to the glory of God. He's feeding his family, feeding his children, his wife, but he doesn't thank God for the field that he's plowing, the food that he gets out of the ground. He doesn't do it for God. My friends, we are made by God to glorify him and to worship him and to know him and to love him and to enjoy him forever. But that is not this man Jehu. He's proud. And he thinks God doesn't see his motives. But God sees everything. There's nothing hid, we're told, from the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And so notice he gathers everyone. And the room is packed. And uh, we're told several things here as you read on. He's got no conscience about lying. That's the first thing we see here. And a Christian does. It's never right to lie. The scriptures say, you know, God cannot lie. And neither should we. All lying is sin. 
Now, we have no idea at this point how involved John Adab is. We can't say. It's very difficult to say. We don't know. And it seems, however, here that Jehu is taking the lead in all of this. John Adab is just a bystander and may be in fear for even his life now, but that does not excuse him. Now notice verse 23, and so the room is packed, this place of bar worship. And Jehu went, and Jonadab the son of Rechab, into the house of Baal, and said unto the worshippers of Baal, Search and look that there be here with you none of the servants of the Lord, but the worshippers of Baal only. And when they, that is, the Baal worshippers went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now notice, this is Jehu, not Jehonadab. He went out, and he did something very subtle. Jehu appointed four score men. Now in a score, is twenty. So a lot of men here. Eighty men. Without, that's the outside, and said, If any men of the men whom I have brought into your hands escape, he that letteth him go, his life shall be for the life of him. In other words, if any man escapes, your life is on the line. And of course, they go in and they slay everyone. And there's not a soul left. Verse 25. And it came to pass, as soon as he had made an end of the offering, the burnt offering, Jehu said to the guard and to the captains, Go in and slay them. Let none come forth. And that happened. Each one was slain by the sword. So the whole house there, and they smote them with the edge of the sword, and the guard and the captains cast them out and went to the city of the house of Baal. Now, this is wrong, isn't it? He, he pretends to be a worshipper of Baal, and, and he knows, of course, he's not. And so what he did is he used dishonesty, dishonesty to slay wicked people. And God never approves of that. How different to the Lord Jesus. When he went into the temple, he stated his reasons why he went into his father's house. That they were making his father's house a house of merchandise. He didn't lie. We must always be honest. Always honest. Well, there was zeal in Jehu, but not for God, not for godliness. But there's a strange irony. Notice in verse 26. And they brought forth the images out of the house of Baal and burnt them. And they break down the image of Baal and break down the house of Baal. We'll stop there for a minute. Think of these idols. Can Baal speak? Can Baal protect himself? You know, these idols, they make a mockery of man. And the man's a fool that makes them. Destroyed in an instant. But notice furthermore, the house is completely desecrated and made it a draft house unto this day. That is a toilet. 
They made it a latrine. They made it a sewer place, a public toilet, a place of worship. Well, pastor, I don't think that shows any respect for religious diversity. God brings an end to it, doesn't he? Thus Jehu destroyed Baal out of Israel. Yeah, but it was the Lord. But Jehu did it with the wrong spirit. And that's not forgotten. He might fool men, but we can't fool God. And finally, we see Jehu for what he really is, a nominal believer. You notice what follows. Verse 29, Howbeit from the sins of Jeroboam, Remember Jeroboam, as the nation was split after Solomon's son, Rehoboam, he set up those two places of golden calf worship, saying effectively that these calves are God. Why did he do that? So that Israel didn't go down south to Jerusalem to worship, because he was more concerned about his political interests than anything else. But God had explicitly said in that second commandment, thou shalt not make a false or graven image and bow down to these things. But he carries on because it was convenient and because he didn't love the Lord. That's why he didn't get rid of these golden cups. So we see there's no love to the Lord. And there are many like this. They go so far. The zeal, but zeal to impress people, that's wrong. What we do is it to impress people. That's, if, if I have anything to ask for us to challenge our own hearts this morning, it's that question, what you do, is it for the Lord or is it to, to impress people? He liked the praise of men. Oh, he even liked the action and it was even better when it was in the name of the Lord. But really, Jehu didn't love the Lord. When it came to really dealing with the, the, the issue that began all of this, and remember it was golden calf worship that led to Baal worship. We said it before. And we see then what happens is God's judgment. And let me say this. What should have happened is there should have been a change now. There should have been a change in Israel, but there wasn't. Israel continues on in golden calf worship. And we actually see the hand of the Lord now coming in verse 32. In those days, the Lord began to cut Israel short. Why? Because as they saw these Baal worship got rid of, and the house of Baal turned into a toilet. They should have been on fire for the Lord, but they weren't. They weren't. And so what happens? The Lord, notice there, cut short, began to cut Israel short. That is, the Lord begins to allow the enemies all around to come on them again. And this is what you see. And this is actually a fulfillment of what Elisha said to Haziel 
what Haziel would do. That he would begin to slay the children of Israel. You see, my friends, here's the lesson. God wants full consecration from Christians. It's not consecration otherwise, is it? He says, my son, give me thine heart. He doesn't say half a heart. God, I'll give you the scraps of my life. But whatever God says, my friends, we are not allowed to play around with God's word. We have to do it. And there's always good reason for whatever God says. But they didn't do it. And so as a result, the Lord removes his restraining hand of the enemies and lets the enemies loose on Israel. Look at verse 32b. And Haziel, that's the king of Syria, smote them in all the coasts of Israel. From Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites, the Reubenites. Eventually, in 722 BC, the nation will be destroyed, and they will become Samaria, and uh, they'll never have a king again, Israel in the north. Do you realize that we'll never have a king again? Judah will continue, but not this nation here. The prophecy was given in Second uh, Kings 8. Remember how Elisha said to Haziel, Haziel said to him, Why weepest, my Lord? And he answered, Because I know the evil that thou wilt do to the children of Israel. Their strongholds will thou set on fire, and their young men will thou slay with a sword. The Lord had revealed all of this before. And as you see, here's the problem. Sin was not dealt with. And let this be a lesson to us in our lives as Christians individually. Are we conforming to the word of God? It's all very well saying, Jesus died for my sins. Yeah, but I want you to go home and read Romans chapter 8, why Christ died. It says that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. He saved you that you might serve him. That you might serve yourself. And live your own self-styled Christian life, my friend. That's a paradox. It's not of God. And you are really then, if you just live your own way, you are showing that you're no different to Jehu. You're a person of convenience. But you won't fool God. You might fool other people. But you will not fool God. I want to just close with a few points of application. Firstly, friends, behold the extent that religious zeal can go to. Look at this man. I mean, he even fooled Jonadab. And others. Secondly, sinful methods in a good cause shows the absence of faith and godliness. 
And I apply this in all areas of our life. A wrong method exposes unbelief in God who says he will do all his good pleasure and that he will even save the lost. I can apply this as even we evangelize. As we evangelize to the lost, we never lie to people. We never put baked on the hook, as it were. We never try and charm people into being saved. We speak the truth in love. There are no more tricks. We don't use tricks. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, says Paul, the ministry of preaching and evangelizing, we have received mercy. We faint not, he says, but we have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. We should be able to say to people, you've seen my life. If I am not the genuine article, I'm not saying that I'm perfect, but don't follow me. We ought to be able to put ourselves, as it were, in the barrel of the shotgun and say, my friends, am I using dishonesty? Am I speaking the truth to you in love? You are a sinner. And unless God saves you and has mercy on you, you'll be lost. You're not a good person. We don't go around telling people that they're good, that they're nice. I'm not saying we try to offend people. The gospel is offensive, but we don't bait people. We don't trick them. We tell them if they come to church here, they're going to hear the word of God. We're not going to fill them with hamburgers and hot dogs, because that's what you're going to have to do if you entice them that way, because that's all they're going to want, hamburgers, hot dogs, music, and everything else. You say to them, look, this is the one desperate thing you need, is to hear the truth. Yes, we can use hospitality, but we are not to be dishonest. Paul says we have renounced hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness and so on. We have to be so careful. There's so much in us, isn't there, that tends to the flesh, wants to please others. And it's wrong. We have to trust God. He, he will sh save only his sheep. Only he can give the new heart, my friend. <laughs> only he can do it. I can't do it. He makes the sheep. He calls the sheep. Now, I want you to notice as we conclude, look at... Jehu, it says there in verse 35, he slept with his fathers. That's his body. So he went to the grave, and, and people, that's where we all go. You may go young. And they buried him in Samaria. Now, he wasn't long king. Twenty and eight years, it says there at the end of verse 36. Twenty-eight years. But you know what? His body... He's been in the grave now over 2,800 years. And where is his spirit? It's been 
in the place of darkness for 2,800 years. Now, you live your life in wickedness and without fear of God. That's where you go. This is why Solomon says, fear God, keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. And the sinner's only hope is Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners, not good people. And they live for him now and glorify him. May God bless his word and sanctify our hearts through it. Amen. Amen.